0: If you look up in the corner of your uh, notes, you see a very ambitious um, desire. The goal is session two, First Thessalonians. There's there's something. You know, we're only here going to be here for an hour. I promise, we won't be here all night. But uh, it's a good book, and we we're thinking about Paul and his prayers. And I want to to look at this as a whole, try to survey through it, because what we want to see is those prayers. So. Before we go and and look at it, let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that you are always with us. We thank you that when we're gathered together in your name, you promised to be manifestly in the midst, and we rejoice in that tonight. And we come and ask you to meet us by your spirit as we think on your word. Speak to our hearts. Meet us so that we can fully understand the potential that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So meet us tonight for your glory, and we thank you for it, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I wonder if you ever had one of those uh, really bad years. It's, it's about the new year, and people think about it. One of those, day, those years where when you get to the end, you kind of go, thank you, it's over. I want to put that behind me. I want to let that one go. And hope that the next one proves to be a new start. I mention that because uh, the book of First Thessalonians, one of the few that we can actually pin, this book was pretty much written right here, and we can know the circumstances under which it was written. And they're not the easiest set of circumstances. Paul is almost certainly in Galatia, or excuse me, in Cor- Corinth, and he just started his ministry there when the report comes to him that he he mentions here in 1 Thessalonians, from Timothy concerning what's going on. But the year before he got to this place has been a tough one. It starts with God revealing his will to him. I don't know how many times I've I worked with students that thought, you know, kind of this way, that if I just knew what God wanted me to do, all would be well. <laughs> Well, Paul knew exactly. Uh, If there's any place in the New Testament where somebody gets guidance, it's Paul, he's trying to go up through, he's in Asia Minor, which is Turkey, and he's working up up this direction, and as he goes up into the uh, fight, God says, no, 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 and then finally he sees a vision, so he's got all sorts of instructions, and go to Macedonia, and so he does, and that's the beginning of that year. At the end of that year, again, when we say a year, let me just say that we don't know it's a year, but it can't be a whole lot longer than that, maybe eighteen months. It could push if it could push maybe to two years, but probably not. but at the end of that period, Paul is in Corinth, and God comes to him and makes another statement to me you know, we have to understand that the the New Testament doesn't indicate that God spoke to paul on a daily basis in this way when he needed particular words from the lord god came to him and gave him those particular words he is in corinth and god comes to him and says this don't be afraid and the new american standard translates that picking up the picking up the verb tense there don't be afraid anymore stop it paul it's time to stop now I don't know if that crosses you as being unusual, but I always kind of put Paul up there. You know, he's the guy that gets stoned and goes back in. He's the guy who can take on anything that comes up. But the word there is just don't be afraid. It's the same way I would say it to anybody else, don't be afraid. And we have a hint in, the, in what God continues to say, what the Lord says to him, what was causing the concern, and we'll talk about how it gets there, but... Because nobody's going to bother you. Nobody's going to be able to touch you, Paul. I've got people in this city. I'm going to keep you here, and I'm going to keep people off your back. That's the important point. Now, why would he say that to him? Well, let's go back through this year. You cross over into Macedonia. You go to Philippi. Paul begins a ministry in Philippi, and it was fruitful at the very beginning. He meets a, a woman named Lydia, and Lydia becomes a founding member and an anchor in that church but it's not very long into his ministry there that he runs into a problem with a demonized woman who was a fortune teller who was bothering him. And he finally gets put out with it. He was very patient about the situation. but says, after many days, but that many days can't be a thousand days. It's got to be a reasonably short period of time before Paul says, I don't want the testimony of a demonic, demonized woman uh, going before me. And so he... Deals with a demon. Out you go. The people become the people she was actually a slave, and the people who owned her were so distressed by the loss of income, because she was fortune telling for them, that they organized a the riot, and next thing you know, Paul is dragged out in front of Philip the 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 magistrates there and beaten with rods. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about But to be beaten with a rod, I mean, I have never been. I mean, this is across the back. And when you're flogged, they use a whip, it tears the skin. You use a stick, it just bruises the back pretty badly. Deep bruises, bone bruises, possibly, and at times, and often, cracked ribs. I've never had a cracked rib, but I've known people that had cracked ribs. Not a pleasant experience. So Paul's in through that, and then he's thrown in prison, and in that prison, he's singing praises. We talked about that last week. He does what he says to do. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. And so he's out there rejoicing in the Lord, in the night. But that would take a lot, and then the jailer there is converted. But Paul is also run out of town the next day. Or within a reasonable time. Maybe next day, maybe the day after that. But the magistrates say, we're sorry about what happened, but we want you out of town. So he's just established this church and he's run out of town. he He goes on to Thessalonica, which is where this letter is written to. And in Thessalonica, he's there for three weeks. People are responding to God. And then he runs into trouble with the officials, the Jews that are in control of the synagogue. And they get on his back, and, and he gets run out of town again. Now, we don't know how much longer than the three weeks it was, but it's just long enough to get these, this church established. And we'll see tonight that there's, it's amazing how much they actually knew from a three-week um, or from this very short time, but he's run out of town again. That means that by the time he's run out of Thessalonica, he still probably is feeling the effects of being beaten in Philippi. And he, he relates to them. You know what happened to me at Philippi. You knew what condition I was in when I showed up. He goes down to a, another town nearby, Berea. And there's also a, a movement of Spirit of God there. But as those people are coming in, again, the guys come down from Thessalonica. The The Jewish uh, opposition comes from there, stirs up trouble. And uh, the people of Berea take Paul and out of town at night <laughs> he said you, you need to get out of here before somebody kills you so they do and they take him out at that point he separates from uh, silas and timothy who go back to minister and to try to help the churches but then he proceeds 200 miles to the south to athens all by himself that is apart from his team so he's been run out three times <laughs> run out of town I don't know if that sounds like a rough ministry to you or not. But this all probably happened in just just about three or four months. Gets down to Athens, and he's all by himself. He's waiting for them to come back and meet him, but he doesn't get met. They don't come, and and he finally goes up to preach there. But as he's in Athens, all they do is they just treat him like he's an idiot. It's just, you're a fool. About the time he's again, you remember in the book of uh, Corinthians, which is written not too long after this, probably a year or so after this, Paul says this: the gospel message is to the Jews a stumbling block, but to the gender, or to the Greeks it is what foolishness; it is absolute foolishness. He knows that firsthand. This isn't because he got up there and preached. Yeah, right. This is the intellectual elite. This is where the cultural center of the Roman Empire was. The the Political center was at Rome. The cultural center is in Greece, and mostly in Athens. And he doesn't stand up there. Not very many people respond. He, he he's, so he retreats from there and gets goes to Galate or to excuse me to Corinth. He's in Corinth, and just after he gets there, he starts preaching in the synagogue. And the here we go again. Synagogue officials get upset. He says the same thing he said before. Okay, if you won't have it, I'll go to the Greeks. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. But I wonder what Paul thought. This is what I, I, again, we can't enter into his mind. It doesn't tell us what it's, what what was going on in his mind. But I wonder if that isn't what was going on in his mind. Here we go again. What's going to happen next? What kind of a beating here? I've just established this church and and, uh, now I'm going to get run out again. But God comes to him and says, no, no, don't be afraid anymore. Now, I'm only saying that because it's in that circumstance. It's while this is all taking place that Paul and and, or see that Silas and Timothy return and tell him what's going on. You have to also to get the full pressure that's on him. Realize that this is a day in which you don't call up Berea and find out what's going on there. You can't even send a letter up there. It's 200 miles away, and the way you get there is walk. So if you want to know what's happening in Charleston, walk to Charleston and find out. All right? If you've got to send somebody down there, you've got to get it back. He doesn't know. Paul has established these churches, and I think that's one of the other sides to the fear feature which comes up in the book he knew that they had accepted the truth but you think about it establishing establishing a church and then leaving it after three weeks do you think you could train a group of people who came straight out of a heathen environment and teach them in three weeks everything they need to know to go forward with god i don't know paul (laughs) accomplished it but he doesn't know he's accomplished it. And so, in the back of his mind, I mean, let's face it. Cell phones haven't made people more secure. They've made them more nervous. I mean, parents check their kids three times a day to make sure they're still okay and still okay and still okay. Imagine what it would be like if you had no contact with a person that you really were concerned about months and months in months, and you just had to trust they were okay out there. That's the world Paul's own, is living in. He has good reason to be concerned. The tensions of that year, plus the physical abuse, plus the the emotional abuse, it just—it's a tough moment. It's in that circle that Paul writes the book of First Thessalonians. Let me also say that there's one other feature to it, which we we have to hold with a you know quietly off the side and say this may or may not be so but most scholars put the book of Galatians actually before the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's it's one of those, which one's first? Which would mean that the problem in Galatia, which Paul can't go to and deal with, is also on his head. What's happening there? The Galatian churches are succumbing to this false doctrine, if that book was indeed written at this same time. Paul's got a lot on his plate. We asked last week, what does it mean? Paul says this, the will of God for us is to be constantly rejoicing, praying at all times, and then uh, giving thanks in everything. That's the will of God. And we kind of can understand the two outside ends, but that middle, what does it mean to pray without ceasing, to be constantly dependent? Well, we came to this conclusion that you can either just guess at it, or we can look at Paul's letters. We can't, the life that, what's described in the book of of Acts isn't detailed enough for us to know what it was like day by day. But as he writes in these different epistles, he lets us know how his prayer life actually worked out. What praying without ceasing looked like in the apostle's life. We said there were three things that you needed to, to keep in mind. This is our general this is behind the scenes. We didn't use a verse to get there, but we're going to be seeing it as it emerges in book after book. Paul had three convictions that enable him to pray without ceasing to have a constant prayer. The first is that God's with him. Right? first, That consciousness that the Lord's right here. He's not up there. He's not away from him. There is nothing happening to Paul that isn't, doesn't involve his Lord who's right there with him. We said last week that does not mean that he had a continuous consciousness. That is a feeling of God being present, but he was convicted in his mind. He knew that this was true, and he lived as if it was true. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is this, that the God that is in control of things has a plan that he's carrying out. That There is a grand plan to what's going on. That there is a plan that started before the foundation of the earth. And we're part of it. Paul was part of it. And that plan not only was being carried out. So he could be very confident in his praying. But it was being carried out through Paul. I want to say that. That again we said last week. That that's important for us. Because we can say yes through Paul. But what about me? No. If you belong to Jesus Christ. This is what's happened. He has come to live within you, all right, by His Spirit. You've been united to Him. The purpose of the head, that purpose that God has, which is expressed in the head, Jesus Christ, is worked out in His body, and you're part of it, which means that there is no one who's insignificant who knows Jesus Christ. Because as we said last week, it's a grand plan, but it's worked out by individuals on a, on a very mundane basis. It's one person to another person. It's a person praying for someone else. It's a person encouraging someone else. It is, that's how the, the grand work is done, by kindness and act and faith and love, which is expressed on a local level, individual to individual. Paul was convinced of that 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 program was being worked out in it. But he was also convinced of a third thing, and that's what we want to look at tonight. Paul was convinced that although God would bring this will to pass on his own, that it would come to pass, no matter what Paul was, that Paul's prayers influenced it in that mysterious way that we, again, as we said last week, we can't really explain those two together. But that's the way Paul looks at it. That the actual requests that he makes have an impact on the outcome of what's going on around him. So, what do we find out about Paul's prayers? What do we ha- we want to look at those prayers in the book? Now, we're going to be surveying the book. All right? I would encourage you just to read through it and, and see it because this book is kind of loaded with prayer, with reference. And it helps us out a great deal to see what did it actually look like when he was praying. And we want to start off with Paul's thanksgiving. Paul's thanksgiving. Paul is thankful for what God has done in that church. Now, Paul could speak about a whole lot of things that have happened to him during the last year. I mean, he could have a lot of people that he's bitter towards. He's been run out of town three times. And I don't know if you have ever been in the place where people, a group of people, look at you and consider you to be a complete fool. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's not the most comfortable place to be. When people think you come, at best, you've lost your mind. At worst, well, it gets worse from there. It's best you lost your mind, then it's just that you're cracked that there's something terribly wrong with you because of the stupidity of what you believe. Paul's been through all this. Now, he could mention all that, but he looks back over the... and he looks at this report that he has when it comes from Timothy and from Silas to him, and he finds out what? God has done a work. Now, in every one of our lives... Those two things are always happening. When the will of God is being done, things are going wrong and things are going right. Just at the very beginning of my Christian life, I had this, this dream that somehow if you got on a track and things went well and you prayed and you, just, you were like you know, knocking everybody out of your way and you were just going in the will of God. The fact is, in the word of God, the picture is not like that. Paul's been through all kinds of setbacks. To start a church and then have it ripped out from you and run out of town. And then start another one and have, it, and, and have the same experience. To start another one and have the third experience. To be then cut off from your friends. To be thought a fool. All those things are setbacks, but he doesn't mention that. He says, we heard certain things. And I would just encourage you, one of the reasons that Paul was the man he was is he looked for God's activity around him. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, God's activity is taking place around you. Other things could be happening that aren't quite so much God. That's why we don't need... We, yeah, the devil was uh, hindering him. He's going to talk about that. But God was working. And so he says that. And here's the First Thessalonians chapter 1 in verses 2 to 9. And I'm just going to mention this, this one line from it. It says this, And I heard about this. Your work of faith, your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope. These guys had not received a lot of instruction. Now, we don't know how much Paul and Silas, or excuse me, Silas and Timothy had done with them. But what a description of them. A work. He says, you're working and that work is a work of faith. And you're laboring for one another and that's that's in the love which comes. And Paul was very clear about this. In the Roman world, They didn't even have a word for biblical love. They did not even have a word. They didn't need it in their vocabulary. They had no concept with which to attach it. Does that make sense? It was an unloving world. It was a a for-yourself world. It's a lot like our own world. Live for yourself, all right? Paul, when he was looking to see whether God was working, looked for two things, and we need to be always looking for that, He was looking for people who by the spirit of God's work were coming to trust Jesus Christ. They were coming to faith. They were looking for people who God was working in who began to love one another, right? Now, most of the time, that's what he says, just the faith and the love that he gives thanks for. But in this case, he says one other thing. He said, you have something else. I remember that was in persecution that they had been Brought into the Lord or brought to the Lord. He says this. You have the steadfastness which comes because you have a, f- a founded hope. That hope has to do with what you believe God will do in the future. No matter how bad things get on this world, Jesus Christ is coming again. And he will stand on this earth. All right. And we'll be participant if you've come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've entrusted yourself to him that's where you will be. There will be a day when those who considered us fools will be out of the picture. And Jesus Christ will be vindicated, all right? If I'm going to live accurately, I have to, if I'm going to have a steadfast life, if I'm going to keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep steady towards the goal, I have to be confident in that because what's happening around me often is crazy, Right? Your circumstances might be all over the place, but they had a steadfastness of hope. And what Paul says here is, I looked at that, but I didn't just say, "Wow, that's great. I give thanks continuously for that. I'm always before God. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? One of the things, again, is part of giving the thanks, but what do you see is happening around you? Do you give thanks for people who are coming to the Lord? for people who are growing in the Lord. Now, let me say something about this church. It was not perfect. Paul's got some other things to pray for them. There's <laughs> obviously problems. Later on, he says, you're really need the Spirit of God to admonish the unruly. Okay, there's unruly in the church. There's ignorances they have. They have to grow. They are up against a moral pressure. The Roman world was full of moral pressure. All right, there was the persecution side of the problem. There was also the moral side. He's going to talk to them about that. But that's not going to stop Paul from giving thanks for what he sees of what God's done. We're not going to see perfection in anybody or anything until the Lord comes. Right? We're in a battle, right? But we have to look for it. We have to look for his activity, not the perfection. Now, the second thing he says is that He gave thanks because when they heard the word of God, they responded. We ought to give thanks for that. Because there is no one who on this earth can force another people, another person who can cause another individual to hear the word of God as the word of God. This whole year had started as far as the ministry went when God opened Lydia's heart. How about that? God opened up. Lydia's heart and she received the message when he got to Thessalonica one of the reasons that the officials opposed him was because the people who had been coming there and they had been teaching all of a sudden they like Paul's word and they are accepting this word and they are moving into a new camp and Paul gives thanks for that he gives thanks for when people listen to the word of God what else does he give thanks for he gives thanks to them, just for them and what it means to Paul when other people are blessed by God. He says, you're my joy and my crown. <laughs> for me, to, the joy of my life is you growing in the Lord. This is part of what that love, which God puts in our hearts towards one another. Right? It's not just, uh, I want to be all I can be for the Lord. But we all have to be all we can be for the Lord. We'll see that in just a moment. So he gives thanks. But I've got to get I've got to go very rapidly. So Paul's rejoicing. And I'm not going to take too much time on there. That, um, he just tells you that, that, that this is my joy. That God is doing this work in you. It's, it's, my, it's what causes my heart to rejoice. Now you say, well. I thought he was supposed to rejoice in the Lord. He is rejoicing in the Lord. He is rejoicing in the Lord. Because every time I see a student move towards the Lord, that's, and I get, I get excited when I see that, when I see people being changed, when I see them facing the real challenges of following the Lord and saying, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to actually put that thing aside. That causes real joy. But it's joy in the Lord because the only reason that happens is because God, by his spirit, the Lord, by his spirit, comes in and changes a life. But he is changing those lives. And so Paul was rejoicing in all that. But then Paul prays, and I want to get to that part. I want to get to the, because that's where we, that's primarily what I wanted to get to. Paul's prayers. Now, he has several prayers. At the very beginning of the book, he says, I'm praying always for you. In the middle of the book, he has this prayer, and he says that I I want to I'm praying to God that he'll, give us, he'll bring us back together again to minister. And so I can come and minister. There. God will lead a way to you. But then he also prays for them that their love might be increased in this, this circumstance. But at the very end, he prays for them. After he gives this word that you're to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. And then he says something about the word of God. He te- speaks about not despising the prophetic utterances. Then he comes back and he says this. Now may, this is one of those prayers which is is couched in this concept of the blessing of God on them. He's pronouncing blessing, but it's a prayer. Now may the God of peace, the God of peace. All right, I'm going to start with that. Now may the God of peace. Let's read the prayer. I will read the whole thing here and get it out in front of us, chapter five, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to read these next two verses because they're they're just attached to it and they're important for it. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. And if I don't get that far in the teaching tonight, I want to say this. That he will bring it to pass is where the whole emphasis is. It is going to happen. Faith was he who's called you who will work. That's what it says there. Who will work. And it's going to come to pass. All right. And then, I want to just notice that that last verse there. He says this. Brethren, pray for us. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But he starts off with the God of peace. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Now, God of peace. So we need to go over this because that's one of the wonderful things about who God is. But He is the God of peace to those who have come to Him and allowed Him to make peace. And I need to, to make that differentiation tonight. We sit in this room tonight, and it's not obvious at all who knows God and who doesn't. Right? And that's that's if there's if there's a mixture in this group, you can't tell. You can't tell in daily life, really, who does and who doesn't. Word of God says this, that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And, of course, it goes both directions. The disasters occur to the just and the unjust. Life goes on in this this era of time. And it's very difficult. If you had the responsibility to minister to people, it's sometimes so difficult. Do they really know? Have they grasped it or are they not? It's It's not like a sign comes on and now we know this group, this one's in, this one's not. Because of that, we can be very deceived about who God is because church can be talking about the greatness of the love of God and all the rest of it. But let me tell you again, let me make this crystal clear that if you have never come to that place, where you have entrusted yourself into the saving hands of Jesus Christ, he is not the God of peace to you tonight. He is a God with whom you have a war. Right? In the book of Romans, it says this, that therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. The war is over. But the war is over because the thing that God hates, sin, has been taken out of the way. Every person in this room has sinned. There's nobody here that hasn't, doesn't have that as part of your history. That sin separates us. That sin is something which God cannot tolerate. During this time while we're on earth, while we are right here, God gives room for repentance Right, he gives room for repentance. That's what this life is about. That's the most important thing that's going to happen to you between when you were born and when you die is what you do with the Lord Jesus Christ. The rest is relatively insignificant. It will pass away. Again, we don't want to diminish all the relationships and the rest, but the, the reason the world goes on is because a kind God is giving individuals a chance to turn to him, okay? When that is finished, and that finishes for each individual when they die, that time of grace, this is the age of grace, this is the moment of, of, a, of God extending himself to a, a rebellious people. But it's because he has a gospel. It's because he has made a way in Jesus Christ for that sin to be taken out of the picture. Everybody here in this room has that as part of your history, but for a lot of us, it's not part of our picture because he took it out of the way. When did he take it out of the way? When I came to him. I was 21 years old when I came to him and entrusted my life into his hands as the Savior, as the one who had paid the price, as the one who would now take over the life and and use it for his glory. When that happened, the war ended. I didn't even know there was a war until later. I went through all of high school thinking everything was fine and not knowing that if it had come to an end at that point, if I had done something and it had cost me my life, I would have faced God and found out that he was anything but pleased with what was going on. But the gospel's there, isn't it? wonderful gospel for those of us who know him he's the god of peace it's a wonderful word it has two sides to it on the one side the war is over on the other side peace is something which people on this earth are constantly looking for but can't achieve joy answers to satisfaction people are dissatisfied the answer to that in the christian realm is he gives us his joy But people on this earth are also insecure. Security is a big issue. Satisfaction's is a big issue. That's where joy comes in. But security is a big issue. It's a dangerous world. There's all kinds of physical dangers and, again, all kinds of things that's out there. Peace answers to that. Peace is the bestowal of spiritual blessings which gives a person eternal, long-lasting security. He's the God of peace. That's something. Here are the people that live in the, and it, they've come to know that. And he says, may he himself do this for you. That's who comes to us, all right? And what does he want them to do? May the God of peace, he says this, sanctify you entirely. I've, I've been thinking about this for several weeks and I think, what a, what a tremendous verse. The word entirely there when it says he sanctify you entirely is actually only used once. This is the only time that word is used in the entire New Testament. And the word has a kind of a unique um, meaning to it. A.T. Robertson described the unique meaning says this. It's The best way to understand it is that Paul was saying... I want God to sanctify every one of you, right? Every single one of you. He's, he just, it's, you know, the entirety is in, including everybody, but at the same time that he's including everybody, he's saying, I want him to sanctify everyone and in every way. That's how the word entirety goes. He's talking to a church, He's talking to a group of people that have problems that are short of the mark in certain respects, but they've got the spirit of God. They have come to Jesus Christ. And he says, I want all of you to be sanctified. And I want all of you to be sanctified as thoroughly as God can sanctify an individual. Do you believe that's the will of God for you? This is hard very hard because we live in a world which having lost its moorings doesn't know where it's going we don't know where we fit insecurity is a huge problem in our day people don't know who they are or where they're going and the outworking of that in the church is this so many people think that the that the message of the gospel is somehow for everyone but me the devil has succeeded in isolating individuals and saying, that's not what, that, it's great for you, but it's not for me. Not that they're rejecting it, just that he, died, he won't care about me. I don't count. I'm not in that that group. Now, when Paul says this, he is speaking to a real group of regular people. It includes everybody. He says this, may God sanctify every single one of you. And sanctify, sanctifying here has, in, again, if you go through the book, it has two sides to that too. On the one side, sanctification means to be purified. He's spoken earlier in the book about the fact that you're in an impure world and it's God's purpose for you to be sanctified from impurity. So he's saying to them, I want God to do a work. And again, the Roman world, was, it was as raunchy as our world. And I want every one of you to be set free from that completely. I want God to do that. I want Him to not only do a little bit better. I want Him to sanctify you completely. All right. The second side of it is this: a sanctified thing, is a holy thing, belongs to God for His use. I want God to do a deep work in every one of you. This is it Paul praying? <laughs> Instead, something a deep work in every one of you so that you will belong to Jesus Christ every moment for his use. So that's the way you approach life. That's what sanctification is going to mean. He doesn't want to just see an improvement. What does he say? May the God of peace. Think about that God of peace. Because very often, when you're struggling in the world of sanctification, you can look at God as anything but a God of peace. Do you? Because you can look at yourself as being, again, as an unclean person, as a person who sins, as a person who's fallen short. And but He says it's the God of peace who I want you. I want Him to step into your experience. And I don't want Him to change that experience. I want the full blessing of what you are in Jesus Christ to come to pass. That's tremendous, isn't it? the God of peace and he'll sanctify you entirely. Then he goes to a second side of what he in the book. He has been thinking a lot about the second coming of Jesus Christ. There's a lot in first Thessalonians about the second coming. Of course, that second coming uh, involves what we would call the day of the Lord. It's it's the moment when he's going to sort out things on this earth. The day of the Lord involves real blessing for those that know God and real horror for those who don't. It's a day of separation. Um, I would not want, I, I really don't long to be here when that happens. All right? I'm just, because it's going to be the beginning of God separating out when it's going to be the end of that long period where he kind of deals with everybody this way and He starts separating it out and some receive wrath and some, and it's a terrible moment. I don't look forward to the moment I'm, I'm telling you Again, when I will see the full judgment of God, we'll be there to see the full judgment of God brought to pass. Uh, Anyway, Robert Murray McShane has a hymn, which is that he knows, he says, in that day I'll know how much I owe. And one of the things he says is when I see people at the edge and being put in. And I don't know, not till then, how much I owe. Now, in the middle of all this, Paul asks for a second thing. He says this, and may your body and soul and spirit be preserved. All right, first is sanctified. Now he says, now you just be kept. And it says, until the day of the Lord, right, to the day of Christ Jesus. Um, The preserved part, um, Let me say, this is where I run out of my expertise, all right? When I run out, which is pretty fast, of my expertise in Greek, I go to the scholars and say, scholars, what do you think? And I've got my selected scholars, all right? In this case, the scholars, who are supposed to know all the answers, divide into two camps, all right? I am not capable, I have no, nothing to put into the pot to determine which, but it can mean one of two things. On the one side, it could mean that he wants to preserve you the whole way through your life until, again, they were thinking about the second coming, until that day comes. It could mean until the day of the Lord. Um, there are a lot of scholars. Leon Morris is one of them who believe that it should be translated in the day of the Lord. May you be preserved by God in the middle. May you may you be enveloped in Him is the thought there, completely kept by Him when all of the when everything breaks loose and you start to see things falling apart on this earth. May He keep you and preserve you and. One way or the other, it has to do with their hope, and Paul is is praying for them that that will come to pass for each one of them. Right? Now, that's a tremendous prayer. If I'm, and I'm challenged by a lot of this because this is what we the whole purpose. Of this is a this is an appreciation course. You know, it's one of those ones. Let's see a little bit of this and a little bit of that and appreciate it. Don't you appreciate the fact that Paul aims so high in prayer? He doesn't ask for little stuff. He's asking for the whole kit and caboodle to be taken care of. Let's go for the top. Why does he do that? Well, he tells you next, and this is where the mystery comes. What? Faithful is he who called you. That's why he's so grateful to God, or part of what he's grateful to God at the very beginning, he says, called when, when God called you, he brought the word of God to you. You responded, but it was the call of God. Faithful is he who called you who will also perform it. Now this brings us to that mystery of prayer. Paul believed that God would finish what he started in the, in the Thessalonians. He believed that. But he also prayed that it would come to pass. He believed that his prayers had an impact on that. And all through the, the word, he, again, this is when we find out what God wants us to be and what God wants you to be and what we how it's going to work, what do we do with that information? What Paul did with that information when he found out this is the way God's going is he then asked him to do it. He asked him to do what he had promised to do. That's why we... then. We should look and pay close attention to what God says about how he's going to bring it to pass. Then I want to go to one last thought that's on there. Paul focuses his prayers on what he knows God will do. It's mysterious. But then comes this this final mysterious thought because we're just trying to figure out what does he think about pray without ceasing? Why does he want us to pray without ceasing? Then Paul, of all people, says this. Brethren, pray for us. Brethren, pray for us. Now, none of those people in that church could be much over two years in the Lord. They're not. These aren't the old saints from way back who have walked with the Lord and proven. These are brand new believers. Why does Paul ask for prayer for them? He's praying for for them, why does he ask for prayer from them? All right. Well, this helps you to understand how Paul conceived of the church and how it functions. It would have been simplest thing for Paul to say, listen, I'll pray for me. You guys pray for you. Right. The same prayers would have taken place. Right. If I'm praying for me and you're praying for you, everybody's prayed for. Right. But it's not God's way. It just isn't God's way. Paul was a power. He asked for things here that I'm not so sure I would have had. Would I have had the faith? That's one of these things that's going to challenge me in these things. The prayers that Paul offered. Do I have the faith to pray? Do I have the confidence in God that Paul had to pray for you, everybody who is a you? I know most of you pretty well. That God would sanctify you completely, every one of you. So that you were purified in your character and you are completely devoted to him. Can I do? I don't know if I have quite that much faith. Then Paul turns around. That's a man who has that kind of confidence in God. He says this. Now, I need your prayers. I need your prayers. Because God's way is the way of love. In the way of love is everybody taking care of everybody else. That's the way the Godhead works. They take care of each other. They don't dominate each other. They don't live in separate, separate apartments. And out of that Godhead comes the full power. That's what the church is all about. It's not one of us taking care of everything. It is all of us taking care of each other. It is all of us working together so the, pr- the purpose of God is fulfilled, each doing their part. And as far as God is concerned, every part is important. So Paul not only is praying for them, but he knows he needs their prayers because that's the way it works. That's important for us. You know, it's easy to ask people to pray for you how much are you praying for other people? That's that's something I have to ask myself. How much do I pray for? How much is my life invested into paying enough attention to the people right around me that I know what needs to come to pass? But it's not only true that I should be praying for you. This is, we were thinking about it today in class. (laughs) It's one of those things that you have no idea how tough this is for me that I need your prayers. Part of the whole makeup of my nature is to not need you. The culture I grew up in was take care of yourself. If everybody did it, everybody would be taken care of. All right? To be dependent on another person is kind of the ultimate sin. I hate to say it, but you have to get to a place where you're the giver, not the taker. Be a giver. And that's the part that was so hypocritical about the whole culture. Help everybody else, but don't let it flow this direction. All right. Be the guy who, who is supporting others in their, in, their, in their need. Always be kind to them, but never take it back. All right. That's your response ungodly ungodly did you hear Let me say that I want to say it out loud it was ungodly it still is ungodly because God's way is love and his way is for us to pray for one another we saw something of that last week we're in a warfare together everyone here is in a warfare if you know Jesus Christ and everyone else here one of our or not everyone but what our Part of our responsibility is to be looking up to find out where there is need and standing in the gap. And sometimes that standing in the gap might be standing in the gap for a Paul. That our prayers might be necessary for a Paul to accomplish his work. Book of Ephesians, he finishes out that is after he says that we ought to pray for each other. Then in that book, he also says this. And pray for me. And there he gives exactly the wording. He, he, this is what I want you to pray for me. He's talking about spiritual warfare and the conflict that's going on. He says, and pray for me. He's in prison now. Pray for me that I might have boldness to proclaim the message as I ought to. That the fact that I'm in prison doesn't doesn't thwart my boldness in speaking the word of God. Paul is a bold man, but he is a tough tough circumstances but he asked the Ephesians to pray so that he would have the courage to do what he needed to do he prayed for them that they would be built up in the Lord Jesus Christ What does it look like to pray without seeing well let's come come here's a little bit you can read through the book for yourself it's it's really quite I think you'll find it very inspiring in that light how much he has to say about prayer how much thanksgiving he gives How much rejoicing he expresses. But how confident he is. In the one that's sitting beside him. That the plan that he had. From the beginning of the earth. Is taking place through him. And that taking place. Will occur partly. Through him standing. And entrusting it to him. What's the will of God for us? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything. Give thanks. Let's pray. Father, we're coming and asking you to do work in each one of us. Father, for your praise and glory, we thank you for that prayer of Paul. Oh, Father, would you do it? Would you sanctify us, all of us, each of us, as far as it's possible for you to sanctify? Father, may we be kept in this evil world until that day when we see you face to face. Lord, we look to you for it and we trust you and finish your purpose in us and we look to you for it in Jesus' name.